0: chapter 10, verses 1 to 21. So that's John's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 1 to 21. And when we finish the reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and please will you respond, thanks be to God. So I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and your response is, thanks be to God. Fantastic. John, chapter 10, from verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, He goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be
1: God. Well, morning, everybody. Uh, thank you, Alice, for that. Um, just to emphasise what Gift said at the beginning about Richard Cunningham, we're very much looking forward to welcoming Richard and Ruth there in South Africa on sabbatical. They arrive on Tuesday morning. And uh, God has done a great work through Richard on the university campuses of the UK. They've trained people uh, in the various mission organizations on all of the campuses in the UK. And it is a tremendous uh, ministry that they've been doing. So it's a privilege for us to have him with us. And there's much for you to learn Uh, if you're thinking of a career in campus ministry. So do please be praying for our fellowship with them next week. And then, uh, I know it's a bit warm, but I have just turned off the fan because it was feeling rather like standing on the runway at Cape Town Airport. Um, If you feel during the sermon it's too hot, wave at Sebastian and he will turn it back on. So, um, let's start with a word of prayer. Do please have your Bible open, as always, at John 10. John 10. And we'll ask for the Lord's help. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for bringing us together this morning. Uh, We thank you especially for those who are new to us today. We pray that they would feel at home among us. And Lord, at the beginning of a new year, we, we have all kinds of different pressures and challenges that we're dealing with. And we need a touch from heaven. So we pray that this morning you would speak to each one of us at his or her point of need, and we ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. Well, for the last three weeks, we've been trying to understand what Jesus meant uh, when he said, I am the light of the world. And uh, this morning, we find another of these tremendous but rather puzzling statements That Jesus made about himself because in our passage he says, I am the good shepherd. Uh, He says it twice, once in verse 11 and then again in verse 14. So it must be important. Jesus wouldn't repeat it otherwise. But again, we need to ask well, what actually does Jesus mean? Now, I think the problem that most of us have at this point is that these words are simply too familiar. I don't know about you, but I certainly grew up with pictures of Jesus in books or on the wall at school uh, showing a young man with flowing blonde hair invariably carrying a newborn lamb in his arms. And, of course, pictures like that have left many people with the impression that Jesus is just a thoroughly nice person, but not much more. He's terrific with animals and children, but he's not necessarily the first person I would go to for help. He's simply too nice. The Bible, of course, offers absolutely no support for that way of thinking, so let me direct your attention to two pieces of evidence which expose that idea of Jesus as a complete myth. First, three times in the passage, Jesus describes the religious leaders of the day as thieves and robbers. He says it in verse 1, he says it again in verse 8, and he says it again in verse 10. Now that is deliberately provocative language. You try using that language with the authorities at your next general synod and see what happens. We can hardly say, can we, that Jesus is being nice. And by the end of the passage, the authorities, I think, are quite understandably upset. And you can see that by what they say in verse 19. He's demon-possessed, raving mad Why listen to him. Secondly, in the wider context of the Bible, to be a shepherd is to be a leader. The best example of that in the Old Testament, of course, is King David, who was known as the shepherd king. Now, don't get confused. That wasn't because he started out looking after his father's sheep and somehow the reputation stuck with him for the rest of his life. No, it was because in the Old Testament, a shepherd was a leader or he was a ruler. So when God called David to be king, he said this, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. To Samuel 5, 2 Samuel 5.2 Also in various other places, God tells Israel's religious leaders to shepherd the people of God. They were usually pretty hopeless at it. Nevertheless, shepherding was a way of talking about their responsibility to lead God's people. So pulling all of that together, in our passage this morning, Jesus is building on the experience of the man born blind in chapter 9, in order to give us a striking contrast between Jesus' style of leadership and the leadership of the Jewish authorities. And you remember that last week we saw that whilst they insulted this man and threw him out of the fellowship, Jesus gave him a totally new life. So when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd... The question that you and I need to ask is not, how nice is Jesus? No. The question we really need to ask is, what kind of leader is he? And in the passage, Jesus gives us four answers. Number one, what kind of leader is he? Well, Jesus knows his people. And we're looking here at verses 1 to 6. Now in Jesus' day, um, sheep were left for the night in a communal sheep pen. So within one single enclosure, there were probably several flocks and one watchman. And then in the morning, um, each shepherd would take it in turns to stand in front of the gate and to call out his own sheep by name. Now, of course, obviously we have a problem at that point because if you live on a massive sheep station somewhere up in the Karoo with thousands of sheep, you obviously can't do that. But in Jesus' time, the flocks were much smaller. And even today in parts of the Middle East, there are shepherds, can you believe it, who know their sheep by name. So Jesus was taking a practice that was familiar to his audience as a way of talking about his relationship with the true people of God. So what is that relationship? How does it work? Well, look at verse 3. The sheep listen to his voice. In other words, the sheep listen to Jesus' voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. So, Jesus here is telling us that he knows his people personally. He calls them by name and when he does, they respond. Now, of course, that was exactly what happened, wasn't it, with the man born blind back in chapter 9? Jesus drew that man into a conversation, a personal conversation, and the man responded. Now, friends, what you and I need to remember is that that is exactly what happens to you and me. Each time that the Bible is opened and explained, Jesus is calling his own people by name. And those who belong to him will listen and follow. Why will they do that? Because they know him. Now, it's very important to understand that in the Bible, knowing is not simply an intellectual word. To know someone is not simply to know about them. It means to know them personally. So, knowing in the Bible is a relationship word. If Jesus knows you, then it means that he has determined to have a relationship with you. And for that reason, you can know him as well. One of the clearest explanations of this comes in a book called Knowing God, which some of you have read, by a man called J.I. Packer. And uh, I've given you a short quotation, which I hope will appear on the screen because I think this explains the point rather well. He writes this, if the decisive factor in knowing God were notional correctness, in other words, head knowledge, then obviously the most learned scholars would know God better than anyone else. But it is not. You can have all the right notions in your head without ever tasting in your heart the realities to which they refer. And a simple Bible reader and sermon hearer who is full of the Holy Spirit will develop a far deeper acquaintance with his God and Savior than a more learned scholar who is content with being theologically correct. Students pay attention. The reason is that the former... Will deal with God regarding the practical application of truth to his life, and the latter will not. Now, can I ask, which of those best describes you? Are you full of knowledge about Jesus and nothing more? Or are you in the habit of applying the truth about Jesus to your daily life? Because I have to tell you that the decision you make on that is the most important decision any of us will ever make. So Jesus knows his own sheep by name. And they follow him because they know his voice. So there's a personal relationship. But, says Jesus in verse 5, they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him. Because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. In other words, if the pastor in my local church isn't actually encouraging me to follow Jesus, if he never urges me to know him better, if he never challenges me to surrender more of my life more completely to him, well, Jesus says he's a stranger. And rather than simply sit there Sunday by Sunday, Jesus expects me to run away and find a different church. What kind of leader is Jesus? Jesus knows his people. Secondly, Jesus cares for his people. Verses 7 to 10. Now, the the shepherding illustration contains a deeper truth than the the Jews in verse 6. They never understood it. They didn't get it. Because here what's happening is that Jesus is drawing on a number of different passages in the Old Testament in which God warns Israel's leaders about the consequences of their corrupt leadership. The most important of these passages is in Ezekiel chapter 34 and I'd like you please to turn there now. Keep a finger in John 10, go back to your Old Testament and find Ezekiel. So how does it go? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel and we want to be in chapter 34. Are we all there? Now, this is a famous passage. Uh, Some of you will have read it before. There are two things we need to notice in it. First, first thing to notice is that when God's people are poorly led, badly led, God knows about it and he is angry. Read from verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, says Ezekiel, son of man. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. So pause on that, stay there. God knows when his people are being badly led and when the leadership is corrupt and God is cross about that. Now second, notice what God plans to do about this dreadful state of affairs. Verse 11, listen out here for the repetition of the word I. Verse 11, for this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land." I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. Verse 15, I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. So, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he's not just saying, I'm a good leader, although he's certainly not saying less than that. No, what he's saying is, I am God. I am the sovereign Lord of Ezekiel 34 and I'm keeping my promise to come in person and to look after my people. Now that means, of course, that Jesus is not like any other leader you or I have ever experienced. But of course we have a problem here, don't we? Because history is full of leaders who've made huge promises And have never delivered. In fact, more often than not, in our experience, the opposite has been true, hasn't it? So in the political sphere in Africa, uh, we might perhaps think of Omar al-Bashir in Sudan. Isn't that right, Jock? Yes, it is. Or Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. Or Jacob Zuma, right here. These men, and others like them, all promised the people care and protection when the people were already battling and suffering. And, of course, out of sheer desperation, the people followed them for a time. And yet, in each case, these men turned out not to be shepherds, but to be thieves and robbers. And, of course, inside the church, we've also had our fair share of terrible leaders, So when the leaders of some denominations authorize ordination on the basis of race rather than Christian character, are they protecting the flock? Or when pastors uh, preach a message that encourages the poor to give their very last penny, their last savings to the church on the promises of riches and happiness, are they protecting the flock? So you see, we've become cautious, haven't we, about which leaders really are good shepherds. So we need to examine their promises very carefully indeed. So what does Jesus promise? Is Jesus any different Well, Jesus says in chapter 10, verse 10, if you're not back in John, come there now. John 10, verse 10, here is Jesus' promise. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, that's a wonderful promise, isn't it? I mean, who in their right minds wouldn't want that? But again, we need to be careful. Um, I dare say some of you, as I have, have been to a funeral. And uh, in the speeches afterwards, someone, probably a member of the family, will stand up and say something like this. They'll say, well, you know, Uncle George or Auntie Mary or whoever it was, they lived a full life. And what they mean, of course, is that uh, Uncle George was totally selfish. Uh, in his younger days, he spent all his nights partying, And uh, in business, although his ethics were completely dodgy, he nearly always got away with it. And uh, in retirement, he'd stashed away enough money to indulge, indulge all of his appetites to the full. That's often what people mean when they say that someone lived a full life. And of course, it would be completely absurd, wouldn't it, to suggest that Jesus is saying something like that. And yet, to look at many professing Christians today, it would seem to me that that is precisely what they do think. They think to themselves, well, I'm saved, and uh, now I can live as I please because God's got to protect me. After all, that's his job. What nonsense. Because what Jesus means here is clarified by what he's just said in verse 9. In verse 9, Jesus says, Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. Now, that little phrase, to come in and go out, is a rather odd phrase, and it's a figure of speech in the original language, which means something like uh, to have a clear conscience. Or to be at peace with God, that's what it means. So what Jesus is actually saying here is that the person who comes to almighty God through him, through Jesus, will be at peace with God and will have peace in their hearts. They'll no longer be weighed down by the the burden of guilt and sin in their lives. And Jesus says, if we'll only give that burden, the burden of sin and guilt to him, and ask him to take it away, well, then we really can begin to enjoy life to the full. Now, that, I think, is a tremendous promise. The question is, of course, how do we know that Jesus is good for it? How can we be sure Jesus will actually deliver? Well, that brings us, doesn't it, to the third thing that Jesus says about the kind of leader that he is, which is that Jesus dies for his people, verses 11 to 18. So in verse 11, Jesus makes an astonishing statement, doesn't he? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now that totally blows away, doesn't it, all the categories we have in our mind about leadership. I mean, we all know leaders who've been willing to make huge personal sacrifices for the good of the people. I suppose the obvious example here in South Africa is Nelson Mandela and how we thank God for him. We might also know leaders who've been willing to take significant personal risks for the good of the people. Maybe Mother Teresa of Calcutta would be a good example of that kind of leader. But you see, Jesus not only risked everything, he gave everything. He gave his life, and he gave it willingly. That's what he says, doesn't he, in verse 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Now, we don't know any other leaders like that, do we? I don't. Most leaders today make practically no personal sacrifices for the good of their people. But you see, if we're Christians, we have a leader, a saviour, who gave everything, everything for us. That has three immediate applications. Number one. Jesus' death means that Jesus is especially approachable for those with wounds. So you see, he's not a leader who's kind of read all the books on pain and suffering and knows all the theories about how to counsel us when we're hurting, no. now he knows everything there is to know about pain and suffering because he experienced it personally. And it is, I think, a wonderful thing to see the difference that Jesus makes to someone who comes to him in the midst of a painful, painful trial and finds comfort they never find anywhere else. Pastoral application number two. Jesus' death is the basis on which the flock of God actually exists. So there's a famous passage, isn't there, towards the end of Hebrews, where the writer says, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and so on and so on. Now there's lots in those words, but don't miss the obvious point. The shepherd dies, and the sheep dies. Live. It's as simple as that. And then, thirdly, Jesus' death establishes the pattern for the kind of pastors and elders we ought to have in the church today. So, with our AGM immediately after the service, we couldn't be thinking about this at a better time, could we? Because the word pastor comes from a Latin word meaning shepherd. And the idea that the death of Jesus is the example for all pastors in all generations was already very well established in the minds of the very first Christians. I'd like to show you that. Turn over please to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, what's happening here is that the Apostle Peter is writing to the elders of the church. Let's listen to what he has to say. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and the one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory. That will never fade away. So, the pastor and the elders are called to be examples of the willing self sacrifice of Jesus. He is that kind of leader. And fourthly and lastly, what kind of leader is Jesus? Well, Jesus transforms his people verses 19 to 21. Now, until this point in the passage, uh, Jesus has been doing all the talking. This last little section is rather odd. Uh, We can't immediately see what it adds to the message about the leadership of Jesus. But um, the very last verse in the passage, I think, gives us the clue. Because in verse 21... Uh, John is giving us the reaction of the authorities, that the religious authorities, to what Jesus has been saying. Others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, you've got to think a bit here. Do you remember I said at the beginning that uh, this entire section is connected in some way to the miracle we've been looking at for the last three weeks in chapter 9. What's the connection? Well, surely, John is inviting us to notice the difference between true and false shepherding. So in chapter 9, uh, Jesus heals the man born blind and gives him a totally fresh start in life. And that, of course, is the perfect example of of true shepherding. On the other hand, instead of shepherding the flock, the religious authorities are picking holes in Jesus, they're trying to undermine his ministry. Now that is a stunning contrast, isn't it? While the the ministry of the Pharisees is harsh, it's dehumanizing, Jesus actually transforms people. And in the wider sweep of John's Gospel, we know that Jesus not only opens people's eyes so they can see, but he makes the lame walk, he feeds the multitude, and he even raises the dead. Now, these miracles you see are all signs of the fact that Christians are people whose lives have been transformed. By Jesus. In other words, Christianity, my dear friends, is not simply a matter of recruitment. It's not about you and me socializing people into the local church. It's actually a matter of personal transformation. It's actually a matter of what Jesus calls the new birth. We can't entirely explain that. But it's a reality, and you can't deny its effect. People meet Jesus, perhaps in a meeting like this, and they are born again. And the result is that they can see clearly, they can walk straight, and they enjoy an abundant life. And, friends, therefore, this morning, the challenge that uh, this passage is leaving before you is can you afford to ignore a leader like this? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the good shepherd. Happy indeed are those who can say this morning, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Yes, thank you, Jesus, that you are the Good Shepherd. Amen.